1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a research assistant at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies. And with me today is Madame Yavuz, an assistant professor of sociology at Lehman College. Today, we will be discussing his new book, Democracy and Capitalism in Turkey, The State, Power, and Big Business, published in 2023 by IB Taurus Press. It looks at the surprisingly active role that powerful business people have played in Turkey's democratization. Now, first, I'd like to welcome you to the program and ask you if you could uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became focused on topics related to Turkey and uh, business and uh, democratization.
0: Hi, Ruben. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm happy to talk about my book uh, with the New Book Network. I should say that I have an academic curiosity or interest in the various forms, uh, either negative or positive. Uh, The relationship between capitalism and democracy uh, takes or took historically across many cases. Uh, And I think that this is partly shaped by, I would say, my personal family history. and that might explain why i got interested in uh, turkey and turkish business as well i'm half french and half turkish and even though i spent my childhood in turkey i lived between the two cultures Uh, and as a result i came of age during the military coup of 1980 in turkey Uh, i was around seven or eight when it happened and For listeners who might not know much about the coup, uh, the military had stepped in for various reasons, Uh, among them um, trying to stop uh, fighting between the extreme right-wing and left-wing political factions in the country. Uh, But they also wanted to implement uh, primarily what social scientists, uh, as social scientists, we might call neoliberal economic policies, Uh, And in a nutshell, they sought to limit the size of the government in the economy. Uh, They wanted to liberalize trade, uh, and they wanted to open the Turkish private sector to uh, competition. So they were abandoning the previous protectionist industrialization policies that um, Turkey implemented. Uh, As a kid, during that time, I I kind of, uh, the period was fascinating because I lived it in two uh, different ways. The first one was, uh, I went from a period where there were shortages in the country. I remember my parents uh, would send me to every neighborhood corner store or deli to see if they had any coffee left. And I would walk for minutes from store to store. We went from that to the next year having new novelty items such as VCRs and Converse sneakers that uh, free market economics had, uh, uh, economy had made possible. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it was also a period where there was uh, political repression. Uh, the military uh, kind of jailed many political opponents uh, to the coup. Uh, and they limited wages, and people believed that the Turkish business elite that I ended up writing years later uh, had precipitated the military coup, Um, and so I grew up kind of vilifying the capitalist class, which I saw uh, kind of as supporting the coup. I mean, it's, it might seem that I was too young to think about these things, but my dad was an academic, and I was always you know, playing among uh, left-wing adults who would talk about these topics, so I grew up vilifying the capitalist class. Uh, but at the same time, I also had experienced France, and, which might be the more typical example of what we imagine when we think of a liberal democratic nation uh, that has undergone a period of capitalist development. So I kind of also saw that there was a positive between relationship between capitalism and democracy possible. And so I grew up with this tension in my mind, uh, like that there was a uh, the promise of capitalism and democracy working well together. But also instances where they didn't seem to quite work together, that capitalism was associated and capitalists we associated with authoritarianism. So, when years later, in 19, the 1990s, uh, Turkish business leaders uh, started to press for increased democracy in Turkey and started to uh, really attack the political elite, the military, the state, or the lack of democracy in the country. It was really surprising to me. And it, it kind of, um, I felt that it could be a good, fruitful way uh, for studying uh, the relationship between capitalism and democracy that I was interested in uh, since childhood.
1: Well, so if Turkey is an example of, at least it seems to you, the business elite attacking the military, playing a role in democratization. How does this fit into sort of larger scholarly discussions about about the role of business elites and democratization? Does what happened in Turkey seem to prove things scholars are arguing, or does it challenge the common understanding of this uh, topic? I would say yes or
0: no. It both challenges and proves, and this is why I feel I like the topic. not only in the context of Turkey, but in the, con- in the history of uh, Western Europe and its industrialization or in the history of Latin America. Uh, so the field of political or historical sociology that I'm um, active in it likes empirical puzzles or contradictions in order to advance knowledge. And the relationship between capitalism and democracy encapsulates this contradiction uh, well. Uh, because when you look at historically, uh, you look at full liberal democracies around the world, they all seem to be wealthy and seem to have undergone a period of capitalist development. And when we kind of look at institutions such as the rule of law or protection from arbitrary state power, uh, we recognize, we could see that, uh, like, the, the, the democracy and capitalism in a way have aspects that go hand in hand. And that's why even uh, at the time Marx recognized this and said that that the bourgeoisie uh, was the political or the class in Western Europe that championed democracy. However, it's also uh, within even the example of advanced liberal democracies, uh, such as the U.S., uh, it's possible to uh, notice a tension between capitalism and democracy, Uh, and we could see how in the US, for instance, business can hurt pluralism through big political donations, through anti-union organizing, and through, among other things, income inequality. And I would say that, so there are instances where historically business's role has been positive, instances where it has been uh, negative. And in countries like Turkey, uh, this is maybe more marked uh, because um, in Turkey, the business elite traditionally uh, benefited from the authoritarian practices of the state. It was uh, receiving directly uh, subsidies from the state who was trying to go up business to support its authoritarian practices. It also, uh, how should I say, may be limited from uh, limited freedoms that also limited labor's rights. And so the following puzzle emerges like we see democracy sometimes being associated with capitalism that we see business sometimes uh, pushing for democracy, but at other, other times we see business benefit from authoritarianism. So I would say that Turkey represents an interesting puzzle in the sense that it represented a case where business historically benefited from authoritarianism, but started to push for democracy and we saw this around the same period for example brazilian industrialists who worse for the, the military government in the 1960s and 70s started to even protest in the street in the 80s to ask for more democracy and so in a way uh, i think that looking at the political business of uh, the sorry, the political position of business leaders in late industrializing nations such as Turkey or Brazil kind of helps look at this puzzle in a new way. We could try to see if there are factors under capitalism that can make a more conservative force become more liberal democratic over time. And I like the fact that Turkish business helped look at that puzzle.
1: Well, in the book, I mean, beyond just Turkish business, the sort of the main, the main actor, the main institution you're looking at is this organization called TUSIAD, which is an organization that represents some of Turkey's largest holding companies. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what those are, what holding companies are, especially for listeners who may not be that familiar and um, how do they emerge in Turkey? How does the uh, business, uh, these large businesses, develop in Turkey up until, say, the the seventies when Tusiada uh, emerges?
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you for uh, allowing me to clarify what holding companies are, and uh, and because I think that understanding them uh, might help uh, understand. The pro authoritarian position of Turkish capitalists historically and also might help understand why they pressed for democracy later. And so, as you said, TUSIAD, uh, the Turkish uh, Association of uh, Business and Industry, uh, was formed to represent the political interest of holding owning families. And uh, so, Turkish holdings are uh, corporations that are typically owned and controlled by one family uh, and another, uh, so they're not really owned or controlled by shareholders uh, the same way we might be used to seeing uh, firms in the US uh, or in places like England. Uh, And the other feature is that they are active in many different sectors. So if uh, your listeners uh, ever travel to Turkey, no. an interesting game that they can play is to look at the different products or services that they use while in Turkey and try to see if they can identify the logo of a RAM uh, that kind of belongs to Coach Holding uh, or the sa suffix that uh, belongs to Sabanja Holding. These are the two biggest corporations in Turkey and they will soon notice that they produce everything from bottled water to appliances to kind of food products to owning supermarket chains Uh, so it's very unusual for people in the west to see kind of companies own so many seemingly unrelated uh, products and uh, so they are i would define them as uh corporations owned by one family who are active in many different sectors and the reason for uh why uh the turkish private sector uh came to take this shape it came to be dominated by these families is uh, historical and there are several explanations for it and by the way i'd like to open a small parenthesis. For uh, your listeners who really like, uh, you know, economic history and these types of, in- the, you know, like um, the history of industrial organizations as such, uh, an amazing book is on Turkey is uh, Business and the State in Modern Turkey by Aysin Bura, uh who explains their origin and their history uh, in great detail to the point where the business leaders I spoke to when researching the book uh, kept emphasizing that that was one source that I needed to reach. So even they agreed that it was a good expose of how they came to be. But uh, historically, uh, since the 19th century, um, Turkey's minorities, uh, the Armenians, Greeks, and Jews, have really decreased in size uh, because of various uh, ethnic cleansing policies. Uh, originally, they were the capitalist class in Turkey. Uh, so the state uh, needed in the 20th century uh, to kind of uh, try and promote a new class of uh, capitalists. And the way they did that was through subsidy to industry. And uh, entrepreneurs would compete uh, to get subsidies in order to enter into new sectors that the state wanted to. And once an entrepreneur managed to get a subsidy uh, to be active, to build a factory and to be active in one sector, it was very easy for them to whenever a new competition for a new construction project or a new uh, to building a new factory came about for state subsidies, it was very easy for them to obtain those subsidies because uh, they had experience in industry. As a result of that, uh, they uh, basically uh, grew both in size and in the diversity of activities that they were engaged in. Uh, and I would say that. This is an important aspect in understanding the position of business in Turkey and maybe similar late industrializing nations where state subsidies have been so prevalent and business have been concentrating. Uh, on the one hand, I think that business is strong enough to kind of be active in many different sectors in obtaining subsidies. But on the other hand, they're also politically weak because they are dependent on uh, the state and the state elite or handouts historically. Uh, and I would want to also add the fact that for the topic and the issue of democracy, uh, to have such concentration and diversity of activities was important for holdings as well. Because unlike business people who are focused in on only one or two sectors, uh, large corporations who are really active in many different sectors, uh, were able to have a more bird's eye view of the capitalist system and what capitalists need as a whole to be competitive. And I think that's also key in understanding their demands in later years.
1: Mm. So in that case, why did they, these holding companies, why did so many of them come together in the 1870s and form something like TUSIAD? What were they? What were they trying to accomplish?
0: So to understand why uh, TÜSİAD and the uh, major families, uh, or major uh, uh, holding-owning families came together to found TÜSİAD. We have to know or be clear about the fact that there were already organizations uh, in Turkey, such as uh, like Chambers of Commerce and Industry, That were founded by the state to represent members of the private sector. Uh, So the owners who founded TUSIAD did this in addition or to supplement existing organization. And there are two reasons.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
0: I should say they did not find existing organizations that had been created by the state uh, efficient uh first, uh, their votes in these organizations uh, really was equal uh to the vote of other entrepreneurs. So the their uh, the size of their enterprise, the number of sectors they were active in didn't wasn't weigh their economic power uh didn't factor in, Uh, When these organizations gave a voice to people, they had like the owner of the largest corporation in Turkey had in these organizations as much say as a small local store owner or the owner of a craft shop somewhere. Uh, So it wasn't really representative of how powerful they felt economically. They felt that they should have more of a say within these organizations. Second, and related to this point, they felt that these organizations were not independent enough from the political classes. Uh, political leaders in the 50s and 60s uh, used these organizations to distribute rent and hand out to smaller business owners uh, in order to get uh, their support during elections. And so they wanted to really form a smaller lobby group that would be, uh, where membership would be voluntary and based on uh, invitation only, you needed to be invited by two existing members. They, they really wanted kind of a select group of corporation owners to participate. That's why uh, they formed it, because of the inadequacies of existing associations. I should also add that, uh, you know, we mentioned before when I was discussing um, the state subsidies and how corporations uh, were getting bigger and more diverse, it should be note, uh, noted that that the, the listener could imagine that uh, subsidies that these corporations had received since the 1950s for about 20, 30 years were so focused on a few corporations, that they really became very sophisticated and complex as uh, private sector organizations. And so uh, the type of state intervention that they needed, for example, they wanted to import uh, sophisticated technology to get into a high-tech sectors. they wanted skilled workers, they didn't really need to kind of repress um, Workers to have low wage un, uh, you know unskilled workers. They wanted to conduct more high tech production, or for that reason, they, their interest was diverging uh, from the rest of the private sector. And I would say too, there is an ideological and political leg to this uh, because they had become more important. Uh, in their sector of activity, they had become more sophisticated in terms of the types of economic activity they were in. They also felt more legitimate politically and ideologically. I think that they really felt uh, more confident uh, in their power to uh, kind of have a say in the uh, you know direction that the country would take. I mean, I think that in the U.S. nowadays, where I live, with tech bros who kind of seem to have an opinion about everything, uh, including the humanities and higher education, I think we're used to having business people who say whatever they want on any topic. But in a society where they were, as a class, relatively new, and they were dependent on the state for handouts, it was kind of a new discovery to them to kind of think that they might have something to say about the country's development the country's politics so i think that by uh, you know having this organization to was a way to lobby but also a way to in a way formulate a business ideology and you know define what it should look like
1: Ooh. I want to come to the 80s, but first uh, a question occurs to me, which is that while we're in the 70s, this is the period that, say, you know, the le- some of the left-wing people you were growing up around, this is the period where they concluded that an organization like TUSIAD was in favor of a coup or in favor of the military. Was there anything about Siad in the 70s that kind of proves or encouraged their v- that view of theirs? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, uh, thank you for...
0: Uh, bringing up that issue so to see out, in a nutshell what they did is in 1980 uh, when civilian governments were seemed unwilling uh, for good reason probably to uh, kind of take the um, stabilization package that the imf was pushing on turkey they were unwilling to do economic reform, like do privatization or liberalize the economy uh, for fear that that would make them unpopular with the uh, rest of society, Uh, Tsiad did something that was unprecedented for business leaders, publish four uh, full-page ads uh, condemning the uh, then-elected government for their inability to conduct uh, to implement good economic policy, and soon after, uh, kind of the tanks rolled in, uh, cities, and the military coup happened. And so, uh, you know, the the people that uh, I ran around with as a kid uh, felt that that was, uh, in a way, an indication that Tutsiad uh, had precipitated the military coup of Turkey. And given that the uh, military dictatorship implemented a lot of the policy changes tosid wanted uh, seems to confirm that interestingly enough uh, you would imagine that uh, you know a pro-democracy or an organization like tosi that wants to become pro-democratic when I asked them about the coup you would think that uh, the people associated with with it would try to downplay it but on the contrary, they seem to suggest that that was a, an indication that the Turkish capitalists had become strong enough to kind of uh, affect uh, policy. And they saw that almost uh, as a good thing, not necessarily having supported the coup, but as a good thing that Tisiad was increasing businesses' voice, if it makes sense. Mm-hmm.
1: So after during the coup and after the coup, what sort of changes did occur in Turkey, and how did these changes affect the relationship of the state and these business people, and eventually start to change their views about democracy?
0: So, I would say that uh, I mean, it was interesting because the coup uh, was, uh, you know, uh, as we said, the, the military uh, junta came with the goal of implementing the type of economic reform that the business leaders wanted they carried out a package of economic liberalization uh, so in a nutshell uh, opening up the turkish economy to competition and they also privatized some sectors of the economy uh, that was under previously under the control of state owned enterprises so you know to make a long story short, they implemented free market e- economics that we would assume that business leaders would be uh, in favor of. But I think that uh, I think in the 1980s what happened is members of twosis started to experience both the promise and limits of free market economics. and they also started to notice that, economic liberalization carried out by the military and by the subsequent center right-wing government in 1983 of Turgut Mm Hazal. To open a small parenthesis, probably the second most influential politician in Turkey's history after Erdogan in the last 50 years, Uh, with them implementing economic policy without political reform or without reforming the state the way Uh, the state-society relations work, was counterproductive. They realized that, uh, you know, when think about uh, economic liberalization, one of the reasons at the time the IMF or other uh, international bodies advocated the economic liberalization in Turkey and around the world was that they, they assumed that limiting the role of the government, of the state, would bring together good governance, uh, less corruption, and more democracy. But I think that Tusia, and people in Turkey, and you know, started to realize what sociologists had been saying all along, which is that decreasing the size of the state, the involvement of the state in the economy alone doesn't really solve the problems of the economy, but you also need to have a state reform, better government, Uh, less corruption. And uh, the Özal government, uh, despite its liberalization policies, uh, started to kind of continue distributing favors to its supporters. Uh, There was economic uncertainty uh, as a result of that. And uh, so uh, the the members of TUSIAD I spoke to uh, saw the period as one where Uh, you know they had gotten what they wanted they had obtained economic liberalization but noticed that it didn't bring about good governance and at the same time i would say their economically they were changing they were even becoming more formal as organization and in the 1970s they were becoming more high-tech and so they really wanted uh, changes in political institutions too. They wanted a better education system to have high-skilled workers. They wanted uh, better income uh, equality to have large markets that they could sell to. Uh, they wanted more uh, certainty uh, so that they could, uh, you know, have business partnerships with the rest of the world and import technology for high-tech production. And they noticed that they couldn't do that, uh, that to do those things, you needed to have also a parallel political change to economic change. So I would say that the 1980s was, maybe we could call it, characterize it as like a sandbox. It was like a period where these capitalists got to play uh, in that free market economy that they thought they wanted, but they realized how important good governance was also, and I think it was an awakening, we might call, the the period.
1: Well, so the big event that I suppose we can say you focus on in the change, the transition of Fusillade's perspective is in 1997, they issue this big democracy report. And so maybe we can focus on this for a few minutes, the Sun 97 report, and talk about how it came about, what they were arguing for and, um, what they were, what they were hoping to accomplish with something like this at this point. Okay. So, uh, to give some context,
0: uh, to the democracy or, I think that it might be worth mentioning two things. Uh, the first one to uh, in its attempt to kind of work as the voice of the private sector. Uh, had uh, taken the, into, uh, had adopted the habit of uh, publishing reports since the 1970s about issues that it felt were important to the private sector. It also, during that time, even though these reports were often commissioned and they were written by academics or scholars in the field, TUSIAD and its leadership had decided that they should stick behind uh, what these reports were saying. They should defend uh, these reports. The second thing that is worth mentioning about this specific 1997 democracy report is that to someone who is from outside Turkey, it really seems to be like a very legalistic document that just takes the Turkish constitution and various laws regulating political uh, life at the time and just dissects them and uh, tries to explain how they can become more democratic. Uh, But it's worth emphasizing for listeners outside of Turkey what that meant is that they started in that report discussing issues such as minority rights, uh, such as, uh, you know, they felt that having a Turkish uh, or ethnic definition of Turkishness in the introduction to the constitution was problematic. Uh, they also felt that the report underscored that. Yeah, you couldn't really impose kemalism uh, a set of ideologies named after the founder of modern turkey you couldn't really impose that on every party that uh, ran in elections that you know parties should be free to be kemalist or something else which the turkish constitution did not really leave room for so Within the the scope of outside of Turkey, these don't seem to be very scandalous or taboo issues. But in Turkey, uh, they were new and and taboo. And so I I think that it was really uh, quite a radical break to see uh, holding owners that were, uh, in a way, uh, hadn't depended on the state owed their existence to the state. Uh, kind of come up with a set of propositions how, on how to make the country more democratic by tackling these taboo issues. I mentioned the word break a few times, but it should also be noted too that the report came about because, uh, as I mentioned, in the 1980s, uh, the holding owners and the leadership of Tisiad Uh, realized that something had to change. There needed to be state reform. So one thing that they had done or agreed on in the 1990s was uh, to bring the younger generation, literally the heirs of uh, Turkish holdings, into leadership positions in Tusiad, because they felt that they would be more vocal, they would be more willing to kind of take stronger positions against the political classes and against the state. And so the report was really uh, commissioned by this younger generation, we could say that was maybe more liberal democratic and more open to new ideas. Uh, But it should be emphasized that I think that the older generation in a way gave its okay uh, to the new generation because they placed them into leadership positions, knowing full well that this is the kind of Actions that they would take. So the report, you know, like uh, created the big scandal in Turkey. Some of the people I spoke to said that the the business leaders were tickled that they were summoned by state prosecutors to testify, like political radicals. Uh, But you know, to make a long story short, I think that uh, the the the report was published because. Corporation owners, the holding owners, the Tuchyad leadership uh, felt that that was what was needed for a well-functioning capitalist economy.
1: Well, and one and one more thing at, at, with you mentioning the uh, sort of younger generation of leaders that occurs to me. You write about how uh, the, the interactions of some of these business leaders with, say, peer, peers in Europe or America also sort of change their. Their, their norms, their ways of perceiving, like what was the acceptable thing to support or not support. And th- that socialization also affected their perspective. Is that an accurate uh, way of putting it? Or Yeah, that's an ex- excellent description, I would say. And I, and I think that it underscores,
0: too, you know, like, and uh, the, the, the, there is a lot to this, you know, when we think about issues such as capitalism and democracy, the link between them, there, there is. You know, a literature that uh, sometimes overemphasizes the role of globalization, uh, saying that these kind of global norms get spread. I mean, it's true to some extent, but I think that it's interesting to speak to uh, these business people because uh, you kind of see the mechanisms through which they spread. I mean, first of all, some of them said that they were sick and tired of having to defend Turkey whenever they were at a business dinner. Uh, somewhere in Europe, for example, uh, others mentioned too, that in a way doing business, uh, with foreign companies, what it forced them to do was they, they are, are forced to adopt, you know, like more international, uh, norms of accounting. Uh, so they kind of adopt corporate governance structures. Uh, which makes it also hard to get into more nefarious uh, dealings with state officials. So there, I wouldn't say that what's fascinating about the topic is that, that the changes are at all different levels. Ideologically, they were changing, but also the day-to-day operations of a, their businesses were changing as well, and, and they couldn't really maintain the same kind of uh, relationship that they had with state officials anymore.
1: So let, let's let's let's move on to the well to the last twenty years, the uh, years of Ake Pay rule, and let, let's think about that maybe in decade by decade. Uh, so during the the first ten years of aK Pay rule, uh, the government seemed to be moving in a lot of the policy directions, at least economically, that QCI leaders might have wanted. But there was also many tensions between some of the major holding companies and the AKP. So uh, what can we say about this in the institution? How did uh, Tusiad relate to the AKP um, during this first, the first decade of Akepe rule? Okay. I mean, I would say, I mean, Tusiad's position in the first decade
0: is uh, interesting, not, not because it's peculiar, but it's interesting because it's complex. I would say, I mean, Cisciad and its leadership found itself in in the same predicament as many liberal democratic people from Turkey found themselves in. Uh, The AKP government presented the conundrum, uh, because on the one hand, when you look at the early days of the AKP, Uh, They seem to be willing to adopt some of the changes that liberal democratic Turks, including Tusiad, wanted, such as joining the EU or uh, doing changes like liberalizing the use of the Kurdish language. You know, there there was that dilemma, Uh, do you support, even if you're secular, uh, do you support a Government that might have a hidden agenda of making Turkey more religious, or do you support it for the democratic reforms that it, you know, promises to bring? Uh, and, and I think that Tusiad found itself in, in that same kind of like dilemma, and, and I would say it should be. This is also as good a place as need to mention that. Uh, you know, business leaders in Turkey are not a monolith. Uh, some members of TÜSYAD uh, are more liberal democratic. Uh, and if you uh, speak to, you know, people in Turkey, I think that they know who they are. For example, Cem Boyner, who's a young industrial tycoon who owns like a chain of clothing stores, uh, even joined active politics. Uh, with uh, kind of similar policies or pr- policy proposals of liberating the Kurdish language and so forth. So it pleased, I would say, uh, worried and pleased uh, some members of Tizian, but others kind of were more conservative, and by more conservative, I would say maybe Taignal or 2 Uh, the values of the traditional state elite, which uh, saw, we could say, more Kemalist uh, in line with the founding principles of the Turkish Republic. And so there was a a conflict with the Dutusiyan. And I would say that the liberal democratic wing came on top just because they kind of, the same way that they resolved their debates around the democratization report, uh, they kind of were able to remind their membership that democracy was what they agreed they needed to uh, kind of have a well-functioning capitalist economy. Uh, I would say also in the the, the case of tusiad uh, I remember talking to one of its leaders who said that uh, they had been terrified when they saw Erdogan uh, speak at a public event because they felt that he, he was a dictator in the making. Uh, and But at the same time, they agreed that you know the AKP had come to power with the promise of good government and with the promise that they would be also more into to input from civil society organizations like TUSIAD uh, when managing the economy. And they said that Uh, You know, it seemed like in the first years, at least, uh, the AKP was open to input and dialoguing with the private sector. Having said that, uh, you might be aware as someone who studied uh, Turkey uh, that uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, AKP's leader, the now president, never shied away from also adopting an anti-elite and anti-business discourse in, uh, in public. I mean, there are even many meetings where he's face-to-face with see up leadership and accuses them to their face of being corrupt, of being thieves. And he threatens to eliminate them if they don't do what he wants. And so I think that uh, the, the you know the, the figure of Erdogan has always been as a populist uh, figure, threatening. On top of that, it should be emphasized that one of the biggest support bases of the AKP was uh, more religious, smaller entrepreneurs from away from Istanbul and the main centers where the holdings are traditionally from. They, uh, you know, Erdogan represented the interest of small business from the regions. And I think that for those reasons, we might think that Tusiad was in a way uh, threatened by the occupant. But ultimately, I think that the promise of democracy and the fact that at the end of the day, small businesses from the regions were good or the private sector as a whole. It meant that uh, TUSIAD members had bigger markets to sell their products to. They were doing business with people in the regions. So overall, the economy was more dynamic too. So for those reasons, I would say that TUSIAD's position was, or officially what it did was to really do a lot of public diplomacy uh, kind of uh, activities in the EU, uh, with the government in order to try and uh, really uh, make Turkey's candidacy into the EU possible. And so in a way, it, it tried to be, even though the government was menacing in many ways, it, it tried to kind of uh, take advantage of the fact that it promised democracy at the time.
1: Well, so that brings us to the the last decade. And I actually, I mean, I found the whole book interesting, but I, I particularly found this last Part, very interesting because I just hadn't honestly been thinking about how Tusiad has reacted this past decade to a situation in which the AKP no longer has much, I guess we'd say, respect internationally as like a cha- champion of liberal democracy or anything of that sort. So under those circumstances, how has Tusiad organizationally presented itself, reacted to this? You talk about that in the last part of the book, and I, I found it very interesting. So, if you could talk about that here too, I'd be wonderful.
0: Well, I'm glad that you, you found something in that chapter. Uh, I mean, because I, I guess that the common impression that we all hold uh, as scholars of Turkey is that there isn't, unfortunately, many much room for civil society organizations to to breathe and be active in uh, today's Turkey because of all the crackdown on civil society organizations. And w- when you think about the fact that these big uh, corporation owners uh, you know, have been dependent on the state uh, from the very first time that they were founded, it, it, in a way, might raise the question of whether they would also be shy along uh, the AKP government. Uh, so I, I would say that the, the chapter has... Maybe a more cynical tone uh, as well as a more optimistic tone, I would say. like Maybe the more cynical tone or conclusion that we can derive from the chapter is that, uh, well, TUSIAD, because they have members, because they have accumulated over the years so much economic power and economic capacity, they maybe don't need the government as much anymore. So on a economic level... Uh, maybe they don't feel as threatened. So that that could be, uh, you know, when I think about uh, the broader conclusion of uh, econ- uh, democracy and capitalism, uh, maybe one honest assessment would be to say that, uh, well, business people are happy as long as they're making money. But at the same time, uh, I noticed also that it has, in a way, Uh, tried to kind of use uh, the infrastructure, I would say, built through TUSIAD to kind of very subtly uh, try to continue pressing for democracy. Uh, So I would say that's impressive on two levels. The first one, it's impressive on one level because it should be uh, noted that a figure that you might know, Ruben. Uh, I didn't know, uh, but that your readers might not know, your listeners might not know. It's um, uh, he was a media baron. He owned many publications and TV channels that were critical of AKP, And you know, eventually Erdogan and the AKP, through kind of countless uh, audits of his business uh forced his hand and he sold most of his media empire so they didn't lead to the collapse of one of those holdings uh because he did not fall in line with them uh some people who noticed well would tell you that people within Tusian didn't like i do that much himself and that he was somewhat of an outcast even with that organization that he didn't quite Fit with the subanges and coach of Turkey, uh, but you have that example. You also have uh, some of your more liberal listeners uh, might know also the the the example of Osman Kamala, uh, who's been in jail for I don't know how many years now for supporting civil society organizations that were critical of the AKP government, uh, and you know even though he's not a very big corporation owner. He was a TSEAD member because, first and foremost, he was a business person uh, also. So there are clear threads like that. But at the same time, so despite that, it should be noted that TSEAD uh, was, uh, you know, showed remarkable restraint by not supporting the military during that period. They still continued to meet with leaders of the Kurdish Party, for instance, despite the fact that it came under threat from the AKP. But I would say that most importantly, what they did is the infrastructure they built as an organization. So this has this includes many think tanks in Turkish universities, some think tanks in Europe, as well as like missions in Washington, DC, and so forth. What it has used that. In a way, uh, infrastructure. Uh, it has used it to kind of like come up with more micro-level commentaries on other issues, such as that are not necessarily democracy-like uh, relate that are kind of democracy-related, but without being critical of the government. So they've kind of discussed uh, environmental issues a great deal more than they did before. They talk about issues relating to gender equality a lot more than they did before. They talk about education. So as someone from that I recently spoke to uh, said, they kind of find find ways to kind of say democracy without saying democracy. Uh, They have in more recent uh, reports that they've published they kind of show the, the progresses that there were the things that the AKP government doesn't so do so well or the things that Turkey could do on these several the different uh, dimensions to become more democratic. So they're not really saying things that are as radical as before, but I would say that, that they're finding ways to constantly be active in different democracy-related fields. And I think that they're trying to Kind of push for change at the level of civil society, and maybe also trying to push the hand of the government uh, in accepting like more international agreements that it, it is a signatory to, uh, and so forth. So it's on that level. Uh, having said that, I mean one risk, of course, like business people are, uh, you know, often uh, I would say. Uh, you know, I think that TUSIAD in the 1990s, it tempered the egos of its leadership because, you know, you had holding owners who now have big questions like democracy. So I don't know what focusing on these micro level, the minutia of uh, kind of environmental issues and so forth will, uh, how it will affect business if they would still be interested in participating in TUSIAD actively, but that's like one outlet that I see for their democracy efforts.
1: Well, that's, that's an interesting food for thought. Um, yeah, well, so uh, I, I wanted to end up by asking you just, uh, with this book done, finished, out there, what sort of things are you looking at, thinking about working on now? Well, primarily, uh, so right now I am
0: working on, I'm at the early stages of a project on uh, states, uh, the nature of the state, state power, and COVID-19 interventions. Uh, I mean, the, the reason that it might sound out of left field all of a sudden to talk about COVID, uh, the, the reason that I got interested in the topic was uh, something that had to do with my research on Turkey, uh, which is, um, uh, you know, one thing that came out when, I was speaking to these business leaders. Uh, was how many of them, despite being uh, economically powerful, uh, mentioned kind of being always at the mercy of the state? Uh, they all always were talking about the importance of the state. So the, the whole, I would say, uh, book project on Tusiag uh, made me also embrace in a way that the literature on the state uh quite a bit uh, and so it's uh, uh you know, the kind of like state-centric historical sociology uh is an approach that I I admire and I feel that even though it sounds like it might be counterintuitive uh people who feel that a pandemic like covid19, has been caused by, you know, global forces, globalization that also weakened the nation state. Uh, might think that looking at the state might not be the best way to understand the pandemic, but I feel that you know historical comparative sociology has given us the tools to understand why state intervention sometimes has been successful during pandemics, why it might have failed at others. So with a couple of colleagues, we're looking at uh, measures of state power uh, and uh, whether they explain uh, differences in vaccination rates. And I, I think that that will probably lead to a comparative book project where I end up comparing Turkey to the United States, to France, to see how whether differences in style of government also led to differences in the way uh, pandemic preparedness rolls out moving forward. Uh, So that's one project that I'm hoping to accomplish over the next couple of years. Uh, After that, I want to revisit issues relating to business and democracy because uh, you know, I feel like Tusiad is one instance where business has adopted a pro-democracy stance. Uh, but I would like to write a book where I, you know, investigate all kinds of different vignettes about in business history and maybe look at more closely other instances where business has not been as pro-democratic. Uh, and so, but I don't know what the shape of that will look like yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean... Especially especially the first project on COVID, I think you're to me, it sounds like you're hinting at some of the sociological theories and topics you talk about in this book as well, and maybe in this next project too. And um, I, yeah, I want to say one strength of this book that we can't you know have time for to get across in talking is just how good a job I think you do of bringing in different sociological theories, bringing in different ideas, talking about them in very clear, language and linking them to good examples from your interviews and from Turkish history. So I think the book is a really nice synthesis of these ideas and use of Turkey as an example. So I enjoyed reading it and um, I hope other people find it, take the time to read it as well. Um, it's quite good. So uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk. Well, thank you for your kind words about
0: the book and for taking the time to talk to me.